Well, Israel waited for her Messiah. She waited and waited year after year after year. Israel was waiting for her Savior to to set her free. She was waiting to be set free from fear. She was waiting to be set free from the stranglehold of sin. Israel was waiting, as we learned about in the song, for consolation. She was waiting for hope. The title of the message this morning is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's a shameless bit of plagiarism from the song. But as we celebrate this Christmas season, I want to have you look with me at three very important things. And the three things I want to draw your attention to, and you can follow along in your notes, are found in our passage this morning. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and as you make your way right towards the middle of the pages of the Old Testament, I would have you stand to your feet as we read the Word of God together. For those of you who are visiting this morning, the reason we stand for the reading of God's Word is because this is our highest authority. This is our infallible Word from the living God. And we begin reading in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will you pray with me? Thank you for the chance to come, Father, and celebrate the birth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, indeed, it is Christmas every day for the follower of Christ as we live for Him, as we delight in Him, as we turn from our sins and turn to the saving work of Christ. We thank you for the reality of this season, how it reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ. And my prayer is that we would be reminded of that great hope this morning. And so unfold your word for us. May we understand it as your spirit illumines this text and gives us the ability to to see the text and to savor the text. And more than that, to see the Lord Jesus Christ and to savor him. And so we rejoice in all that you have accomplished, Jesus. We thank you for uh, the life that you lived on this earth and ultimately the life that was set apart to go to the cross so that you would die for the sins of every person who would ever believe. And so we look forward to all that you have for us during this time, during this worship service. We give it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a bit of a roadmap this morning and just kind of a, a set the sermon in advance for you. And then you'll have an idea of where we were headed. This morning, I want you to see, see three very important things. And the three things are as follows. First, I want you to see the context of his coming. That is the context of Jesus coming. And then I want to look secondly at the chronicle of his coming. And then we'll conclude by looking at the conquest of his coming. 
Notice, first of all, as we take some time to examine the context of his coming. Verses 1 to 5 really unfolds that context for us. I won't take the time to read it again. But if we are to understand the significance of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, context is everything. Some of you have heard the phrase, context is king. And that's a very important line as, as we study the Word of God. And it's also very important to, to recognize context as we consider the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to understand that context, the context of His coming, I want to have you look with me at, at, a, at a broad scope, a, a broad sweep, the, the big picture, if you will. And I want to have you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and consider for a moment the curse in the garden. The curse in the garden. Now, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were faced with two competing truth claims. One was true. One was a lie. Both of them were truth claims, but only one of them was, in fact, the truth. Claim number one. Claim number one is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the claim that we're going to look at is addressed specifically to Adam. And it reads as follows. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall what? Die. You shall surely die. Let me just say that when God set this before Adam, his directive was, was clear and unequivocal. There, there is no ambiguity in what God sets before our first father. This is a clear directive. It needs no further clarification. Any deviation from his mandate results in death, both physical death and spiritual death. Now move forward in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And we will look at what we will call claim number 2. Claim number 2 comes directly from, and I hesitate to say this, from the lips of the serpent. I don't know if serpents have lips, but you get the idea. This comes directly from the serpent who says now to Eve... You will not surely die. Do you see how we have different claims? One is true and one is false. God says to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what does the devil do? The serpent says, that's not the case. The serpent, in so many words, says to Eve, God lied. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is claim number two. And ever since the fall in the garden, because we realize that Eve took the bait, she, she ate the fruit, she offered the fruit to her husband, Adam ate the fruit, they plunge humanity into sin and death. And ever since that fall, people have approached truth claims with a great deal of diversity. And that is a, a kind statement, I might say, I might add. Because ever since the fall, these truth claims continue... Some of them are true, some of them are false, as we've seen. But I want to have you look, and this is a strange thing on Christmas to consider, but I want to have you consider, just for a moment, some Greek philosophers. Because the Greek philosophers were really masters at examining these claims to truth. First, there are the sophists. The sophists. The sophists, you see, did not believe in absolute truth. They were what you might call the original relativists. Most of you know people at work, you know people at school who would consider themselves to be relativists. They say, it's okay if you believe that, but that's not true for me. That's what the sophists were about. One of the sophists by the name of Protagoras said this, man is the measure of all things. There was another Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates. No doubt you've heard of him. He believed that everyone could find the truth by looking within. Have you ever heard of navel-gazing? Socrates. The Socratic slogan was, Know thyself. 
And then you have another Greek philosopher by the name of Plato, born in 427 BC, who greatly struggled with this notion of of truth, the the so-called quest for truth. And he said something that I have always found fascinating. He said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a logos. Are you with me? A word who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Now, if you're thinking with a biblical worldview, your, your mind goes automatically to John chapter 1, verse 1, where John the Apostle says, In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't it interesting that this pagan philosopher, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, said one day, I predict that a Logos will come and he will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. There's another group of philosophers that we know as the Stoics. And the Stoics basically said, if it feels good, do it. You know a lot about these philosophers, I can tell. Then there are the pragmatists. And the pragmatist says, truth is determined by what works. Do you know that some churches and some Christians have resorted to this pragmatic lie? That we're going to do whatever we have to do to bring in the crowds. And what happens is truth gets set aside. Then there are the postmodernists. Now we are really in our day and age. The postmodern thinker says nothing is certain, nothing is absolute. Raise your hand if you've ever heard someone say something like that. Nothing is certain, nothing is absolute. And if you Christians believe in absolute truth... You're very intolerant. In fact, I don't believe, so says the postmodern philosopher, that there's any such thing as absolute truth. It was only a few days ago, someone on the internet posted a comment that was directed to some of the writers at Desiring God Ministries in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the ministry founded by Dr. John Piper. I want to read it for you. This individual writes, It is a fool who thinks in absolutes. Just meditate on that for a minute. It is a fool who thinks in absolutes. I don't respond to a whole lot of things on the internet, but I couldn't resist on this one. And so I I wrote a little message back to my unknown friend, and I wrote one sentence. You are making an absolute claim. Do you see that? How, how, it, how it collapses on itself? It is only the fool that makes absolute statements a fact. That sounds like an absolute statement to me. And so here's what we learn in the scripture. God's claims are always true. God does not speak with forked tongue. God does not lie. God cannot lie. And so God's claim to the truth is always absolute truth. And here's what we learn. That Adam's sin plunged the human race onto a collision course with physical death and spiritual death. And because of Adam's sin, each one of us live under a curse. Move with me from the curse in the garden to the curse in the world in general. The curse you see according to verse 1, if you read it with me in Isaiah 9, says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Here's what we learn. That the curse brings spiritual darkness. The curse brings spiritual darkness. Now, I've... Made a big deal about context. Context is king, right? Look at the broader context in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. The last verse in Isaiah chapter 8. And notice what we read. There will, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, Tuck away Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, because we're going to return to that in a few moments. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, 
after he is born into this world, he is going to make reference to this particular scripture during his earthly ministry. Some of you might be thinking, there's gloom and doom and darkness in Israel because of the curse, and you would be precisely correct. But you say, how does that relate to me? Because most of us are Gentiles. The vast majority of us are Gentiles. But recognize there's not just gloom and doom and darkness and anguish in Israel. There is gloom and doom and darkness and anguish throughout the world. There is gloom and doom and darkness in Whatcom County. Have you figured that one out? It's everywhere. And what you can do is you can go to the mall and you can see all the people with the big old smiles on their face, right? And then what do those people do? They go back and they sit in their homes and they realize that they are involved. They live in a world that is filled with doom and gloom and darkness. What are some examples of this spiritual darkness, this spiritual gloom? We are facing a crisis of addiction of epic proportions in America, especially on the East Coast. We are a nation who is filled with hopeless people. We are a nation that is filled with homeless people. We are a people who have been afflicted with conflict, with depression, with anger, with unresolved guilt. I heard psychologists say many years ago, the biggest question that most people face is the problem of unresolved guilt. There is the crisis of poverty. There is the separation between people. If you've ever been in a conflict with another person, if you've ever had an argument with another person, these are all because of the curse. There's not only separation on a horizontal level between people, there's separation between people and God on a vertical level. From the fall until the present day, we have seen and experienced the steady march of the influence of sin. I pulled out a book that I read back in 1994, and uh, it's one of the first Puritan titles that I read, and I actually recommend it highly. It's a book called The, the Mischief of Sin by Thomas Watson. Sin, according to Thomas Watson, brings people low. It brings people low. But he goes on to say this, sin brings a man low in God's esteem. Sin brings a man low in his, in his intellectual parts. He says, since the fall, the lamp of reason burns dim. He said, sin brings a man low in affliction. Sin is the Trojan horse out of which the whole troop of afflictions come. And then he goes on and on in his explanation of how sin brings us low. Sin brings one low in melancholy. Sin brings a man low in spiritual plagues. Sin brings one low in desertion. He says, and he has this way of painting these word pictures. He says, desertion is the arrow of God shot into the soul. That's Thomas Watson. And so the curse brings spiritual darkness. But Isaiah also hints at this, that the curse brings spiritual death. And we've seen that in the pages of Genesis 2 and 3. But then you turn to the pages of the New Testament in probably the most pivotal passage on the doctrine of sin, the book of Romans. Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Let me just say that the curse in the garden... And the curse also in the world in general, general can never be overplayed and can never be overemphasized. We need to learn more about the horror of the curse. This is the context of Christ's coming. It is a context that is characterized by sin and suffering and separation and anxiety of which we will address next week. And it is also characterized by death. The fall of man left us in a position where we are filled with distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And so, if you turn back with me, Israel waits.
You ask any Israeli during this period of redemptive history, when the, when the book of Isaiah was being written, you ask this Israeli, a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, if they understand the reality of darkness and gloom and anxiety and anguish, and they would all understand it. They experienced it. And so they wait for the Messiah. They wait for the one And I might add, most Jews in this culture continue to wait for the Messiah. They wait for the one who will deliver them from the anguish of their sins. They wait for this promise of God to be fulfilled. Simply put, Israel longs for a Redeemer. And so Israel cries out, and I I love this line from the song, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. This is the context of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the second heading, the second observation I want to make, and that is the chronicle of his coming. Now, chronicle is a word that we don't throw around an awful lot. I I would argue, I I would be willing to bet that most of you are thinking about a seven-volume set of books that was written toward the middle of the 20th century. Are you all thinking the same thing? The chronicles of... Wow, how did I know that? So we all know about the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. What is a chronicle? A chronicle is just a, a fancy word for a factual account of a story. And so C.S. Lewis really became popular in large measure because of his amazing books, the Chronicles of Narnia. This is the account of this fictitious place that Lewis referred to as Narnia. Well, I want to turn your attention to a different chronicle. It is a factual, written account of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you could transport yourself seven seven or eight hundred years before Jesus is born, and imagine that you are a Jew, and imagine reading these words for the first time, what are you thinking? I know what I'm thinking. Mama, Papa, there it is. That's it. That's what is prophesied. There is one who will come and his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, I want you to see four facts of the story or the chronicle of his coming. The first is found in the first line and that is I want you to see the prophecy of Christ. The prophecy of Christ. We see here, we read that there will be one who is born as a child. He will be born as a baby. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 prophesies the birth of this child. This is why I say if you're a Jewish person living seven or eight hundred years prior to the birth of Jesus, you're putting all these things together. So Isaiah prophesies, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, his name Emmanuel carries a very special meaning and significance because Emmanuel, as many of you know, means God with us. Now, if you turn back to the context just for a moment, remember the context, gloom, doom, suffering, sin, separation. Now we read these words that one will be born of a virgin. He will be the Messiah. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. How many of you are excited right now? He's with us. He has come. He's going to deliver us. This is exactly what every Jewish person needed. But it's also exactly what each one of us need. It's what everyone in the sanctuary needs. It's what everyone in this culture needs. It was just a few days ago, my wife and I were watching a show where someone had come to some conclusions about our culture. And they were conclusions that we agreed with. 
There are some things that we need to recognize, basic principles that we need to embrace in our culture in o- in other, for us to move forward in a, in a healthy direction. But there is one thing missing from all of this analysis. It's a one-word answer. Jesus. Jesus. You see, we can have education. We can be taught to take care of ourselves. We can learn about sociology. We can learn about philosophy. We can do all of these things. But if we don't have Jesus, we're still lost. We're still living in the doom and the gloom and the the spiritual darkness. We're under the curse. This is the prophecy of Christ. Notice the second fact. It's found in the next line. The second fact is the present of Christ. The present of Christ. If you're under 13 years of age, would you raise your hand? I want to see if you're awake. Keep your hands up. Cody. Where's Cody? Cody, do you like presents? Does anyone else like presents? Olivia, like pre- Olivia gave me a present this morning. Actually, Olivia gave me two presents, right? So, it's the best candy bar ever invented. Thank you, Olivia. As wonderful as those presents are, do you know what the greatest present we could ever receive is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The present of Christ. The Bible says, to us, a son is given. This is the greatest gift we could ever receive. Why? Because we live under a curse. We live, under, we live under a curse, and this curse we have taken time to look at, it's a curse that is the curse of sin that's shrouded in darkness and gloom and misery and anguish. Now, hold your finger in Isaiah 9 and turn with me to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. And this is what I made reference to before and promised that we would get there in Matthew chapter 4. Beginning in verse 12, this is the beginning of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. And here he makes reference to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, that we noted a few moments ago. And here's what he says. Here's what the the account for Matthew says. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of, this should sound familiar, Zebulon, and Naphtali, so that when what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness. Does that sound familiar? This is the context of the curse. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for Those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began. I might add, Jesus, the light. John loves to refer to Jesus as the light, as you know. He began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You say, how is it that this... Messiah. How is it that this, this man, Jesus, can tell people around him to repent? Have you learned that most people don't like it when you tell them to repent? <laughs> so some of you have, have been there, right? You, you sit across from a pastor. You sit across from a Christian friend. And you're looking for the answer to your dilemma. And you just need some encouragement. And what does that Christ follower say to you? You need to repent. How is it that Jesus can tell people to repent? I want you to look at the third fact as the story or as the chronicle continues to unfold. He tells us to repent because of what we see next in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And that is because of the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. Notice in verse 6. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be on his shoulder. One writer says that this figuratively refers to the kingly robe worn by the Messiah. As king, he will be responsible to govern the nation. In Isaiah's day, Judah's leaders were incompetent in governing the people, but the Messiah will govern properly. 
One of the things that King Jesus says is you must repent. You must turn from your sin and you must turn to me. You must bank all your hope and future exclusively on me. The preeminence of Christ. And as we focus on his preeminence, I want to remind you of some of the things, some of the the, the pictures, the realities that we see in Scripture. We see, first of all, that he is a loving king. Jesus is a loving king. Matthew 11, come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Please remember this Christmas season as we bow before the throne of Jesus. He is a loving king. He has your best interests at heart. But he's also a saving king. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save whom? The lost. He came to seek and save the lost. He's also a forgiving king. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a forgiving king? He loves us so much. He he is a saving king, but he is also a forgiving king. Colossians 1.14 says, In whom, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Finally, I want you to see that this king is fully man and fully God. And isn't this exactly what Israel needed? And isn't this exactly what you and I need? If you notice again in Isaiah 9, 6, we have seen the prophecy of Christ. We've seen the present of Christ. We've seen the, the preeminence of Christ. And now I want to zero in for a moment on the person of Christ the person of Christ, and make special reference to his titles, to the names that are given him. First, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And this title could literally be translated as exceptional or distinguished. This is a counselor who is an exceptional counselor. He is a distinguished counselor. This is the one to whom, the Bible says, the nations should listen. Is it any wonder that Peter and James should hear a voice in the cloud? You remember in Matthew 17? They heard a voice in the cloud, and the words they heard were something like this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you remember what the father says next? Listen to him. Listen to him. Why would God the Father say listen to him? Because he is a a distinguished counselor. He is an exceptional counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. But he's also referred to in Isaiah 9, 6 as the mighty God. The mighty God. It is John Calvin who said, If in Christ we find nothing but human flesh and nature, our glorying will be foolish and vain. And our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But, but if he shows himself to us to be God, even mighty God. So what Calvin is getting at is Jesus is not just fully man. He is fully God. We learn from this title that we may rely on him with safety. Thus, we learn from this title that there is in Christ abundance of protection for defending our salvation so that we desire nothing beyond him. He is God who is pleased to show himself strong on our behalf. And by this point, you should say to yourself, that's exactly what Israel needed. In fact, that's exactly what we all need. We need this wonderful counselor. We need this mighty God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So said Paul in Colossians 2.9. There's another title in verse 6. Jesus, or the Messiah, is referred to as the, the everlasting father. The everlasting father. You'll remember, and some of you have been in classes, that we have set forth a a very important ancient word. It's the word homoousia. Any of you remember that word? Homoousia? 
What does it mean? It means that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. He's the same substance as the Father. It was the bishop Athanasius during the Nicene Creed who who boldly stood up and proclaimed that Jesus is homoousia with the Father. In fact, you might be interested to know that as the legend goes, there was a man by the name of St. Nicholas. Do you know St. Nicholas? What name has been attributed to St. Nicholas? Santa Claus. Isn't that something? Did you ever hear you think the word Santa Claus from this pulpit? St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was a godly man who believed with all his heart that Jesus that the Messiah was of the same substance, the same essence as God the Father. He is the everlasting Father. Finally, notice that the Messiah shall be called the Prince of Peace. And that's exactly what Israel needed, and that's exactly what you and I need. The chronicle of his coming is the, the most consequential story that has ever been told. Think of the greatest story you've ever read about. This is the greatest story that has ever been told. This is a a story that is radical in nature. This is a story that is absolutely life-changing. It's a story about reunion. It's a story about reconciliation. It's a story about redemption. For the birth of Jesus Christ forges a path for sinful creatures trapped in gloom and darkness and enables them to come out of the gloom and into the light and have a relationship with with the God of the universe. So we've seen the context, we've seen the chronicle of his coming, but I want to close by having you look with me at the conquest of his coming. And I want to have you, if you would do something with me, would you, some of you can't do this because you brought your phone or your iPad, so just work with me. Hold up your Bible, would you? Or your phone or your iPad or, and if you don't have one, would you grab one? And if you haven't yet, Participated, will you go to the book of Isaiah? Go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, and take part in this fun little exercise with me. With your finger in Isaiah chapter 9, because we'll come back to look at verse 7 as we conclude. I want to have you go to the end of the book of Isaiah. And whoever gets there first, just yell out what you find. What's the next book? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Now go to the end of Jeremiah, and what what do we find after Jeremiah? It's that little book that's tucked after Jeremiah. We find Lamentations, and then go a couple more pages, or only take a second, to the end of Lamentations, and then we find the book of Ezekiel. You guys are getting it. This is amazing. Now we're not going to go through all of the books, but now we're walking through these major prophets, and what comes after Ezekiel? We see the book of Daniel. And then if you'll page from Daniel all the way through to the end, just keep going and going and going, and I'm doing it with you. And you're going to walk through the minor prophets. You're going to hit Nahum and Haggai. You're going to hit Habakkuk. We're going to study Habakkuk in 2019, Lord willing. We get to Zechariah and Malachi, the Italian prophet Malachi. I can tell that's a new one for some of you. You like that? You can use that. The Italian prophet, Malachi. And after you get to Malachi, what comes next? You come to the Gospel of Matthew. What we find in these pages that we've looked at, and we could also go back to Genesis chapter 3. What we find all the way from Isaiah to Malachi is nothing more than the history of sin. And humanity that is lost in gloom and anguish and spiritual darkness. Now look with me at Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18. And I want to read a section of scripture that some of you have, have never heard before. And for those of you, for, for the majority of you that have heard this, because it's a very well-known scripture... You have probably become too familiar with it. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And if you're piecing these things together, you're saying, there it is. The Messiah was prophesied. In fact, Messiah was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We refer to it as the, the first gospel. The first indication of the gospel is in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, where it was prophesied that one would come and crush the head of the serpent. And indeed, that has taken place. This is what I like to refer to as a never-ending reign of righteousness. And isn't that exactly what Israel needed? A never-ending reign of righteousness? And that's exactly what you and I need. Log on to the internet tomorrow morning. Go to CNN, if you dare. Go to Fox News. Go to ABC. Go to NBC. And read, read the headlines and, and watch what's happening in our world. We are in need of a never-ending reign of righteousness. Now, when we think about the Christian faith, we are obviously and rightly captured by the themes of reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness. But I am convinced that we need to broaden our horizons as Christians and see the big picture of God's redemptive plan. For here is God's aim. God's aim is to establish a kingdom on earth as in heaven. That's really what we spent time studying about over the last six or seven weeks in our, our series on heaven. But this is the big picture of God's big plan. To establish a kingdom on earth as in heaven. A king who reigns in a kingdom... And the name of that king is Jesus. He will reign. Now look at verse 7. Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You remember the competing truth claims? This is what we're forced with this morning. We either believe that the Lord will do this or we turn away from it and we remain in spiritual darkness. I love the line from the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, written by Charles Wesley, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring you see charles wesley got it for charles wesley in the 18th century it wasn't just about souls do you understand what i mean when when i'm concerned that we have made it all about souls it's only getting saved as important as that is but it's so much more grand than souls and merely being saved it's god's redemptive plan of establishing a kingdom on earth as in heaven, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. I don't know when it started, but oh, for me, I, I'd probably identify this back in the 90s when I was first married. But have you ever wondered when it became offensive to say Merry Christmas? I mean, you just scratch, I scratch my bald head and say, 
Just, just yesterday, someone said, Happy Holidays! And I said, Merry Christmas! <laughs> when did it ever become a crime to say, Merry Christmas? You see, everyone appears to enjoy the benefits of Christmas. Everyone. I don't think anyone's excluded. We enjoy the lights and the pomp and the circumstance and the trees and the gifts. And at least Cody, Cody, you like the gifts, right? Bring it, baby, right? We love all those things. We love the holiday cheer. So where did the negativity come from saying Merry Christmas? One author provides an answer, and this this did it for me. He says, This is why the continued celebration of Christmas is a standing threat to the secularists who want to remove every vestige of it from the public square. I dare say they do. They understand it better than we do. Now, that got my attention. And here are the words that just, just... Blew me on my back. Merry Christmas really means tyranny is dead. Think about that. I don't see anyone getting blown back on their back, but I hope figuratively it blows you away. Merry Christmas. When when I said Merry Christmas to my friend yesterday, really what I meant is tyranny is dead. And some of you are kind of giving that look like tyranny is dead. What are we talking about here? What are we referring to? We're referring to Isaiah 9, the tyranny of sin. You remember ancient Israel, they are, they are socked in by gloom and doom and mire and sin and spiritual darkness and spiritual death. Tyranny means this. The Messiah has delivered his people From the tyranny of sin. He has delivered his people from the penalty of sin. He has delivered his people from the power of sin. And one day he will deliver his people from sin's very presence. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation says, And he who is seated on a throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I have probably talked to many in the church family about this more than anything else over the last several months. Are you looking forward to this? Yeah. My body hurts. My heart hurts, you say. I'm lonely. I'm in anguish. I'm living in this culture that is socked in by spiritual darkness. I can't wait for the day when Jesus makes everything new. How many of you believe it will happen? Jesus will make all things new. And so there is the the competing truth claim. Jesus says, I'll make all things new. The serpent says, oh, this is as good as it gets. This is your best life now. I don't think so. And so who do we believe? Do we believe the Savior or do we believe the serpent? We've seen the context of his coming. We've seen the chronicle of his coming. We've seen the the conquest of his coming. Allow me to, to close with a few closing takeaways. Questions to get you thinking deeply on Christmas. Because isn't that what we all want to do? Is to think deeply on Christmas? When you consider the context of the coming of the Messiah, have you come to terms with the hopelessness of humanity Apart from Christ. And all you need to do, I'll put it this way. Every day I go for a walk at lunch. And some of you some of you said, hey, pastor, I waved to you. I honked and you didn't talk back. It's because I have my music on or a sermon on and my headphones and I have no idea what's happening around me. So I'm walking and what I do is I walk around the neighborhood and you know what I see? Hopelessness. I see lights on the house during this season, but inside the homes, there's a lot of people who are hopeless. So have you considered the hopelessness of humanity apart from Christ? Every person you know without Christ is living in spiritual darkness. It doesn't matter how big the smile is. It doesn't matter how big the house is. It doesn't matter how many cars there are. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually 
hopeless. They are without God in this world, without hope and without God in this world. And so people can sit around the tree this Christmas season. They can open their presents. They can sip their eggnog with great big smiles on their face. But each person without Christ, deep down, knows the reality of the situation. They're empty. They're hopeless. They're unreconciled with God. They're guilty before God. And they recognize they live under a curse. Second, have you given serious consideration to the the chronicle of his coming? Go back to three or four hundred years before Jesus was born. It was Plato who said, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. You know what struck me when I read that quote? Even a pagan philosopher thought deeply about the coming of Messiah. But you, you must do more than merely think deeply about Messiah. You must turn from your sin and you must trust him. On this Christmas season, we must, we must turn from our sin and we must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for you and for me. The Bible says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be saved. And this is the response I hear from many people. Oh, that, that's too simple. I want to do something. I want to make a contribution. I want to pay. I want to put more money in the pot, more money in the offering. But Jesus says, believe on me. Turn from your sin and turn to me and you'll be saved. Israel was waiting for her Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. She wanted to be free. She wanted to be delivered. She wanted to be set free from the stranglehold of sin. She was waiting for her consolation. She was waiting for hope. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Hope has come. Hope has arrived. For to us a child was born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, would you say it with me? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, may I say in closing that tyranny is dead. Would you say that with me? Tyranny is dead. Period. Tyranny is dead. Amen. Period. No equivocation. No more explanation. Tyranny is dead. And so may I say from this pulpit, Merry Christmas. To God alone be the glory. For tyranny is dead. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for a reminder of the great hope that we have in Christ. God, uh, sometimes we've become too familiar with the Christmas story. We have uh, become so aware of these great things that, that we've be, come to the point of over-familiarization where we, we don't realize the significance of what has truly taken place. So thank you that hope has come. Thank you that tyranny is dead. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for obeying the the Father, both in eternity past and that moment when you were conceived, the moment when you were born, and all those days that you lived your life all to the glory of God, culminating in your brutal death on the cross so that we might be saved, so that we might be delivered from the tyranny of sin. Thank you, thank you so much that we're saved from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And one day we're looking forward to being rescued from sin's very presence. When Jesus, you will make all things new. Now enable us to worship you in spirit and truth. Amen.